Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Gore welcomes Dr. Gary Desir for a conversation about the discovery of the growth factor renalese and its role in the development of certain cancers. Dr. Desir is the Paul B. Beeson Professor of Medicine and Chair of the Department of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Gary, uh, you're really a nephrologist, right? I am. So, so and, and for our listening audience, of course, nephrology is the medical study of kidneys, Mostly, right? And metabolism, maybe a little bit. Yes, mostly kidneys, yeah. Yeah, kidney diseases. Kidneys. So, so kidney diseases, does that mean you work, uh, if here we are on a cancer show, are, are you just working on kidney cancer? Is that how a nephrologist gets involved with cancer? or What's the story there? Well, some nephrologists do work on kidney cancer, uh, but, but most don't. Most work on uh, you know, regular kidney disease, end-stage kidney failure. Dialysis. Dialysis and diabetes and kidney disease. But, uh, but the story I will tell you is unusual uh, in that I am a full-fledged nephrologist, card-carrying, <laughs> and my work has... Nothing been... wrong with that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and my work really has been with um, studying hypertension and kidney disease and, and the connection between uh, kidney disease and heart failure and heart disease. Okay, so, that's, so that's I've, how got, I began. I've, got, I've got kidneys and hypertension. That's blood pressure. I, I, I can get those together. That, yeah. I get blood pressure and heart disease. Yeah. I don't get that in cancer. Okay, well, so can I tell you what, how it happened? Sure, please okay. do. So the, um, so the way it began, uh, our work on, on renalis, which is what we're going to be talking about, is that I was rounding with, uh, I was in the hospital with one of, one of our renal fellows and uh, seeing patients at the VA, and uh, many of our patients have uh, end-stage renal disease for which they get dialysis. Now, the, the problem with dialysis is that uh, one of the good things is that it prolongs life. Yes. So you can, and it was established in the, in the 1960s, and now patients with end-stage renal disease uh, can live much longer than, than they could before. But what has been found over the years is that, um, that when you put patients on dialysis, they develop really severe uh, heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease. And many die from the complications of heart disease. And the question has been in the field, why is that? Why is it that when you develop renal disease and renal failure, you have a much higher risk of uh, heart disease? And it's not just because patients, say, who have hypertension are mm -hmm. at risk for both? Right, well, part of, partly. But um, what we've been doing is actually treating patients with, heart, with kidney failure fairly aggressively right. for hypertension. So many of them have normal blood pressure. I see. And we also control for things like hyperlipidemia or high, high cholesterol levels. So we treat them fairly aggressively. Right. But in spite of our best efforts still at treating, disease, they huh? still get a significantly higher uh, incidence of heart disease. So it's, it's about six or sevenfold higher than the normal population. And is this like heart attacks or heart failure? Or? It's both. So uh -huh. it's, it's uh, uh, heart attacks. And when they get heart attacks, it's much more severe than the person without uh, renal disease. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, a quarter of them die suddenly, presumably from a disorder of you know heart rhythm, and and the rest die from heart from heart failure and uh, and um, and strokes and peripheral vascular disease. And that, that must be very frustrating if you're a nephrologist, really keeping somebody like that alive. Uh, you know, with your best dialysis and medical care, and then they just kind of drop dead on you. That must be very exactly. upsetting. So, so, so essentially, the fellow was complaining that that he felt that he was really not doing very much for the patients. Hmm. That that uh, we were doing the best we could, but we really wasn't good enough. Yeah, sure. So the question was why. And he was a very enterprising fellow. So, um, and, and this is a question I have to say that has been plaguing the renal uh, field for for many years. And and, and there have been many hypotheses as why that could would be mm-hmm. why you develop more heart disease. And part of it may have to do with anemia, for instance. So, okay. so in the 80s, when I was a fellow, we thought that the um, um, advance of uh, the development of erythropoietin, which is something that helps you build your your uh, your red blood cells would mm-hmm. cure would really make a huge difference in how patients uh, 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 you know survive and whether their outcome would be better. Right. Turns out that erythropoietin is good, but it really had made no difference in terms of survival. That helps patient. treat the anemia, right? Treats anemia, but doesn't really help survival. Gotcha. So, um, so one of the hypotheses has been that perhaps um, the kidney behaves as an organ that makes things that that uh, that uh, affect uh, cardi- the vi- cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. And the question has been, how do you find what the kidney is making? Presumably, that is unknown. So, we develop a hypothesis that uh, perhaps the kidney is making a protein that circulates in blood, and that affects cardiac function. Okay. And the issue was, how do you find that protein? <laughs> How do you convince somebody that there's something there that may want to fund your research, right? It, well, that's one. Of, that's, that, that's another thing. Right. So I've I'll, got a good idea. Give me money. Give me some money to do it, and I'll get to that in a second. Okay. But so so we we decided to um, to, to look at that question. Okay. And it's a high risk project. Yeah. You know, as you as you mentioned, perhaps funding wouldn't be forthcoming for such a project. No. But we decided to do it anyway. And we used uh, a couple of new methods that were becoming available. Uh, one of them was an ability to, to look for proteins based on certain specification that could be secreted in plasma, okay. even if they were unknown. So we used that. We also used uh, computer-generated uh, algorithms to screen for large numbers of genes and proteins. Even w- back in the 80s, huh? Back in the, actually, back in the uh, late 80s, when, um, mid-90s, actually, okay when the uh, NIH, the Na- National Institute of Health, was funding uh, research labs to actually s- uh, sequence and, and characterize genes that were expressed in a number of cells. Yeah. So they had a special database called uh, the Mammal- Mammalian Gene Collection Project. Okay. And we, we looked into the database. We screened about um, 18,000 genes and looked for very specific uh, Clues as to for proteins that were unknown, but that could be secreted. Huh. So one of the pro- no the way proteins are secreted is that they have to sneak through the membrane, and they have right. a special uh, tag on them that allows them to go through the membrane to get out of the cell. To get out of the cell. Okay. So we we use that knowledge to screen for those tags. Oh, cool. So we identified about a um, hundred proteins that fit the bill that could be secreted but that were unknown. And you didn't know if they were in the kidney or not? We did not. Okay. And then we, look, we used different methods to make sure that they were in kidney, and we focused on those that were only present in kidney. Boy, this is really a needle in the haystack kind of project, huh? Yes, yeah. Okay. So we're looking for one out of 15 million. And, and, wow. th- and then we, um, 
we've, we found one, we found nine, about nine or so. That were in the kidney. That were in the kidney. Uh-huh. And then we, we isolated all, all nine and then expressed them in cells just to make sure that they were actually secreted. And then focus on one. And the reason we focus on one was that it was highly secreted, no, highly expressed in the kidney. The kidney made a lot of it. But also it had a, it, it could metabolize what we call uh, epinephrine and catecholamine, adrenaline. Adrenaline, people know about that. Adrenaline mm-hmm. is something that uh, in the renal field seems to drive or cause hypertension. So it's, it's elevated in patients with kidney disease. This is the fight or flight hormone that we make. Exactly, right? adrenaline. And we thought if a protein or an enzyme metabolizes adrenaline and if you develop kidney disease and if, if the level of it goes down, then perhaps that could be related to uh, why one gets more. So the, the adrenaline might go higher because you didn't have this thing to metabolize the adrenaline? Exactly. That, am I understanding Correct. correctly? Correctly. Okay. And we know that in patients with uh, chronic kidney disease, it, adrenaline levels tend to be higher. Okay. So that made perfect sense. So we, uh, we studied the protein further. We called it renolase because we thought it was an enzyme that was made by the kidney, hence the name renolase. And so we studied it. One, one other way to study it is to uh, delete it in, in animal model. We use mice to do that. And we showed that if you remove the protein from mice, they become hypertensive. Wow. And they develop, um, they have very high catecholamine levels. And they are very sensitive to uh, kidney damage and to heart damage. And mm. that made sense. Fascinating. And, uh, and then we started working on the mechanism, how that would be. Is it really metabolizing catecholamine or is it something else? Mm-hmm. So, after, you know, I'm, and I hear I'm summarizing a lot of work. I bet. I can and, tell, yeah. And the... Um, this so is what, not easy, folks. Don't try <laughs> this at home. And not in your basement. <laughs> not in your basement. <laughs> and what, what we found was that, that uh, instead of being just an enzyme, uh-huh. renolase is a protein that gets set, you know, secreted into the blood and then it, it, it attaches itself to the membrane of cells. Okay. And then it sends signal, signals inside the cell that allows the cell to survive when stressed. Okay. So for instance, if you cause, um, di- you know, if you reduce blood flow to, a, to an organ, let's say the kidney, and the cell becomes stressed and could potentially die, it increases levels of renolase to survive by activating these uh, survival uh, pathways. Okay. So that's the major mechanism of renolase, and we've um, we and we've studied its um, its um, structure at in, in in significant detail, and we know exactly where it binds, how it binds to the cell. So so that's how so that's my role as a nephrologist. Right. So and now the question is, how do I get to cancer from there? Well, I'm guessing, let me mm-hmm. just try here. Yeah. We know as an oncologist, right. I know that genes which help cells to survive uh, can contribute to cancer because such cells who have their genes damaged and they should kill themselves off because they're not healthy, mm-hmm. if they have a survival advantage, may turn into cancer cells. That's just my guess. That's your guess. Well, that was our guess. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds thinking alike, right? Exactly. So, so we thought perhaps um, you know, uh, something that, that promotes cell survival under stress might be hijacked by cancer cells uh-huh. to allow them to survive longer. And so we, we began looking in, uh, in human cancers to see whether or not renalase expression was higher or lower or different, comparing, comparing it to normal tissue and cancer tissue. 
And what we found to our you know, great surprise was that uh, there were several cancers where renalase levels were highly elevated in cancer compared to normal tissue. Was renal cell one of them? It was not. <laughs> <laughs> ironically. <laughs> Quite ironically, it was not. Uh, so the cancers that, that, that came out were uh, pancreatic cancer, uh, melanoma, breast cancer, and bladder cancer. Okay. So bladder close to the kidney, but not exactly the kidney. <laughs> and so we had to make a decision at this point that this was, this was a nephrology lab, and I had no experience in cancer, cancer research, and should we pursue this? How would it look to your fellow nephrologists? They, they were not happy, I have to tell you. <laughs> but, but, but we thought that, um, that well, we decided to work on pancreatic cancer and melanoma for, for two reasons. Pancreatic cancer is one where mortality is quite high. Terrible. And treatment is not, had, has not advanced significantly over the, over, the, over the few years. Right. And melanoma, all the treatment has been, has, has, you know, we've made significant, significant advances in treatment. Very recently. Quite recently. Um, but we could do better. For sure. And Yale has uh, really great resources for melanoma research. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we thought this was a good, good, sure. good answer to work on. So we started working on that. We partnered with Harriet Kluger. At uh, in oncology, who is a melanoma expert, and 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 started looking at whether or not um, blocking renalase action in cancer might be a therapeutic option for patients, mm -hmm. and um, so that's where we are. And um, I and I, and what we began to do is to um, is to develop uh, drugs that inhibit renalase action. And in particular, we've been focusing on, on antibodies that can do that. Wow. Well, this is a very fascinating story. And even though I've heard you talk about this before, uh, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting to hear how science uh, leads us into interesting directions. Uh, and uh, right now, however, we're going to need to take a break for Medical Minute. We will pick this up after the break. Okay. Uh, so please stay tuned to learn more information uh, about renalase uh, with Dr. Gary Dazir. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 60,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. In many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. This has been a Medical Minute, brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. 
And I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Gary Desir. We've been discussing his work on an interesting protein called renalase. So, Gary, before the break, uh, you were telling me that you had teamed up with uh, Harriet Kluger, who deals with melanoma, and you're trying to design drugs to inhibit this protein, would you think, maybe contributing to uh, melanoma? Right. Yeah, so... um so, so to continue, what, uh, what we've decided to do is to develop uh, antibodies, uh, monoclonal antibodies that, that work, that bind to renalase and block it from activating the cell and cancer cell and surviving. Okay. And we've done extensive studies in, in mice and, and shown that, um, that the antibodies actually work really well. Do you think that the melanoma itself is secreting the renalase and that's sort of a feedback, self-feedback to protect itself? Is that what's happening? Yeah, partly. So, so melanoma cells do make renalase, right? And and renalase secreted by cells can bind back to, back to the cell membrane, to right. the surface of the cell, and signal uh, into the cell. But what we found most importantly is that it's made by immune cells, I see. in particular macrophages huh. that that invade uh, the melan- melanoma tumors. So these are the these macrophages. They're they're cells like Pac-Man cells that like to gobble up the garbage, right? Correct. Right. Kill cancer cells sometimes. Sometimes they kill cancer cells. Sometimes they help cancer cells survive. Apparently, in this case, huh? In, 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 in this particular case, making a lot of renalase allows the cell to grow. Mm-hmm. So if you block um, secretion of, of renalase from, from macrophages, you actually kill cancer cells. Huh. So it's got a, it has a direct effect on cancer cells themselves, but also on what's called the microenvironment of the tumor, mm-hmm. where it inhibits the action of, of cells that invade the tumor. Huh. So what happens when you give these antibodies to the mice? The mice are carrying melanoma? They carry melanoma, uh-huh. and you, you, you give them the antibody, and, and the melanoma in most cases disappears completely. Wow. It's been really amazing, amazing wow. results. And that's just this antibody? You're not combining it with these other super-duper new immune drugs that they use in melanoma? Uh, we're not. Uh, so just by itself, renalase can make a melanoma go away. But in addition, if you have a uh, melanoma that's resistant to those new uh, drugs. super-duper drugs, renalase is effective against them. And if you combine them, it's got a synergistic action. Well, I know that we're going to get a bunch of emails saying, okay, how do I get myself some renalase? So, you know, how does one get from this really fascinating story to delivering it to our patients? Well, the first thing we have to do, and which we're doing right now, is to make the antibody suitable for human use. So the antibody is originally made in in animals, and we have to convert it to something that, that can be that, that will work in people. Because otherwise the human body may not tolerate those antibodies. Correct. Uh-huh. So we, we're currently doing that and uh, should be completed within the next few months. Mm-hmm. And then we have to convince the FDA that it's safe to use in humans mm-hmm. and then plan for uh, tr- human trials. And we, we hope to be able to do that in the next couple of years. Wow, that's, that's really a, a fantastic story. Um, but besides this really genius science hat that you wear, yeah. you also serve as the chairman of the Department of Medicine, which is a very big department here. It know. is. It's um, it's been a wonderful experience. Uh, but it does. It, it's a. It's, we have about uh, 500 faculty members. Wow. And uh, and you know 12 sections, and it's a very vibrant clinical departments and research-based department. It's really. It's been great. Yeah. So that's so really two different very different hats that you're wearing. Yes. Um, and people ask me, how do I find time to do that? Well, I say it comes out of sleep. 
Okay. Well, better you than me, I guess. I like my sleep. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't be telling that to my boss. But <laughs> I do like my sleep. So, so Gary, one of the things that we, we know you are passionate about is this issue of uh, diversity. And I, I think it's so important in such a big uh, department. Um, I mean, obviously, diversity is important in all of our society right now. How, how do you see diversity uh, as a challenge and a benefit, strength uh, in departments of medicine or in medicine in general? And, and what are your approaches? Right. Well, I think uh, you, know, you can make several arguments for diversity. <clears throat> One is just a moral argument that it's just fair and it's, you, know, you should involve others in, 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 what, in what, what's being done. I, I like to make the argument about diversity based on, on utility. So my I, I, my belief is that medicine is really a team is a team sport. Mm-hmm. So you have team science, and you, we take care of patients in teams. And I I think the data about uh, how teams behave is fairly consistent. In that, if you have a diverse team that's making a decision, you usually make the better decision than if you have a homogeneous team. team. Mm-hmm. And in that, I'm 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 thinking about diversity in terms of uh, gender. Uh, race and ethnicity, and also cognitive diversity, how you think about things. So, so there are several papers published in PNES, for instance, where they've shown that if you have a team that's, that has some di- diversity in, it in terms of thinking and, 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 and uh, life experience, they tend to make much better decisions about buying stocks. Or if you have a team thinking about how much to pay for something, and you can avoid a price bubble, if you have a diverse team. Mm-hmm. So that's my approach to diversity. How, when we are taking care of patients and, and deciding on big programs and, and doing research, we really need di- you know, diverse input from, from diverse groups of people. Mm-hmm. And, th- so that's, and I think that's for, from, a, from a point of making the department great, it, it, we really need to make it more diverse. And so how do you do that in a very large department? Right, because you've been chair for what, well, about two years or something two years, like that. Yeah. And, and you inherited a large majority of these people, right? Yes. So, so, so going forward, I, I think uh, what we've decided to do is a few things. One, I, I think to to make a significant change, you need agents of change, and and those the the, the most the most um, valuable agents would be program leaders and section chiefs who do sure. most of the hiring. So the, the question was, how do you? how do you bring the issue of diversity into the daily conversation? So one of the first thing I did was to provide um, leadership training and evaluation from, for all the leaders in the program and the section leaders, and get a sense of how they think and where they are, and provide advice and provide some uh, leadership development uh, support for the leaders. In addition, we commissioned a, a company to do a culture survey of right. the department and see you know, wha- how we think, you know, what we think the culture is, what it should be, and how we can make it better. And the issue of diversity came up repeatedly. And People felt, thought we were not diverse enough? Not or? diverse enough. And, um, and, and, and people f- uh, underrepresented in medicine felt that we, they weren't being supported as well as others. Hmm. So an issue of fairness and, and inclusion. And that's what we're working on. And we also uh, believe that uh, looking at recruiting a diverse uh, house staff, uh, residents and fellows, is important because many of them will become our faculty. Sure. So we're focusing on that. And to help in that work, um, I've appointed a, a, 
Associate Chair, Chair of uh, Diversity and Inclusion in Medicine, who works very closely with the program directors in medicine and our faculty to, to try to, to put in programs that allow, that helps people already here feel included and supported, and programs to attract uh, a more diverse uh, resident, resident pool and faculty pool. Mm. So those are ongoing projects. So these are really wonderful uh, initiatives, but, and I wonder, sort of going back, of course, because our whole society uh, is so uh, slanted uh, traditionally mm-hmm. uh, in a way that does not necessarily help develop uh, people from minority communities and, and less advantaged economic communities, you know, getting back to the talent pool, uh, that's something that as a director of medicine, you don't really have control over, right? That's true. We don't have control. So we basically essentially have to compete for a small, talented pool of people. And and we have not done a good job uh, good competing. Enough. Good enough job competing, you know, f- with them. So and part of the um, the, the work that, uh, that the... Um, Associate the Chair of Diversity is doing is actually try to, trying to expand, to, trying to make it much more competitive in, in, in that process. So we go to um, historically black colleges I was ask, yeah. and medical schools, and we, we, we are much more visible uh, now than we used to be. Well, that's great. I mean, I, it's been my impression. Of course, I came here from Baltimore a few mm-hmm. years ago, three years ago. Uh, as you know, and it's my impression that uh, we have, especially in the House staff, uh, a, a very, it appears to me, quite a diverse House staff, both uh, uh, both racially and in terms of multinational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's a, it, it's a, apparently quite a rainbow uh, House staff as far as I'm concerned, we, in, we, in the best we get, way. We're getting there. I, I think A lot of women. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, this year we um, recruited more women than men. Hmm. Um, the uh, so one of the issues we we come we um, we have to uh, try to solve is that we have a fairly diverse medical school, right? In, uh, medical school the students. Me- student body, and a slightly de- less diverse residency program, and a much less diverse faculty. So yes. the question is how do you <clears throat> how do you recruit and convince our students and our residents to stay here as faculty members? Right. One of the things I've I've been impressed with, and I hope I'm not um, uh, divulging anything, uh, confidences, but uh, which I don't think I will be, uh, is that I I was once sitting in on a a, a promotions discussion <clears throat> among the professors, mm-hmm. and uh, and one uh, female uh, candidate was being presented for promotion to whatever rank it was, and uh, and the person presenting her was really quite clear that that this person had. Uh, had several children during the early part of her career, mm-hmm. had prioritized that importantly as part of her life, uh, and uh, and not to say that there was a mommy track, mm-hmm. but to say that to hold such a person to what might otherwise be normative uh, Time periods, mostly for male mm-hmm. faculty, would not be appropriate, and and I thought that was quite a beautiful and important uh, representation of the fact that there's got to be different pathways uh, for men and women who have uh, other issues in their lives. Right, the work-life balance is very important. It, it is, and and I think the university and the school recognize that, and they make certain allowances. Let's say you have a child um, in, uh, when you're a young faculty member, you can get an extension for promotion. 
because of that. Yeah. And that's also true for fathers. Yeah. And if you take time off work to, to take care of your, your child, then you'll get extra time for it. Yeah. And I think that's really Super important. Super important. Yeah, it's quite yeah. important. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's good, and that's been quite helpful. Um, the the listenership may not un, may not know uh, Gary that I think you're originally from Haiti. Is that I right? am? Yes. And do you feel like your Haitian background or your immigrant status, if you will, uh, gives you a different perspective than many faculty might have? Well, I, I'm sure it does. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Haiti and uh, went to uh, elementary and high school there, and then came to the U.S. to go to yes. college. And I go back quite often to Haiti, and, and sure. I actually do work in Haiti. You know, I have a very different life experience, and certain things that I that I I mean, I when when if I go to a hospital in Haiti, and I see how things are, and I come here and I see how things are, my my perspective is quite different. I bet the things I would complain about here, I would never complain about in Haiti. First world problems, <laughs> right, right? Exactly. So, but 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 I think that um, it um, I, I've I've remained connected to Haiti, so I. I, I think we have, as, a, um, as an institution, we have a um, duty to help others. Dr. Gary Desir is the Paul B. Beeson Professor of Medicine and Chair of the Department of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.